Space. Some regions are vast and empty. Other areas we call closets. Fortunately, Kevin from the Container Store has answers. Hmm, right. Kevin, what gives you the power over space? I'd say Alpha Customizable Closets. With free design and Alpha's adjustable shelving and drawers, I can create space in any size closet. Kevin, master of space and closets. Or just Kevin. Plus, right now, save 30% on Alpha and installation and earn up to $500 in credit through February 10th. At the Container Store, where space comes from. Where is that music coming from? You are listening to SPN, the Sports Podcasting Network. Welcome to Scuderia F1, the podcast that's always up to speed with the latest Formula One news. Follow us on Twitter at Scuderia F1 Pod and subscribe to the show on iTunes and Stitcher. Now, here are your hosts, Mark Daly and Kevin Laramang. Hey everybody, welcome to the podcast that's always up to speed with Formula One. Mark Daly here welcoming you to a very special edition of the podcast. And this is a completely different kind of show this week. I'd actually started planning to do something completely different, quite honestly. I was doing some research in technical innovations in Formula One over the years, and I came across one innovation that is so simple. And uh, I was going to just um, put it in as just part of a bigger show. But then when I considered the larger picture and the guy that invented it, I thought, well, this deserves, uh, this is a guy that deserves a lot more than just a, a mere footnote in a show, a 15 minute show, whatever it might have been. So I decided to do this, and I'm hoping to do more of these in the future. Uh, Formula One Legends, I'm going to call it. So if you like it after hearing it, please share it with your friends, uh, your family, whoever, other Formula One fans, of course. And if you like it, uh, let me know. Drop me a line at scuderiaf1pod at gmail.com or tweet me at scuderiaf1pod. And that's it. I'm going to step away and let's get into it. On the 13th of April, 1931, in Port Jefferson, New York, John Gurney and Roma Sexton welcomed their son Daniel Sexton Gurney into the world. The eldest of two children, Gurney would spend his formative years living on the East Coast, graduating from Manhasset High School on Long Island. Soon after graduation, Gurney's father pulled up stakes and moved his family across the country, settling in Riverside, California, after retiring from New York's Metropolitan Opera in 1947. Earlier in life, Gurney's father Jack had earned a master's degree from the prestigious Harvard School of Business, but had changed to a career as an opera singer after taking voice lessons in Paris. But despite his father's unorthodox career, engineering ran in Gurney's family, with three of his uncles engineers at MIT and his grandfather F.W. Gurney, who was the inventor of the Gurney ball bearing. At the tender young age of 19, Gurney's engineering and practical side were already well developed, and he headed to the famous Bonneville Salt Flats near Wendover, Utah, to race a car that he had both designed and built. While there are a few details of the event remaining, it was reported that young Dan's car reached an impressive 138 miles, or 222 kilometers per hour, during his time at the Salt Flats. Post-secondary education was also beckoning, and Gurney soon headed off to study at Menlo Junior College in Atherton, California, graduating in 1951. In his younger days, young Dan had honed his racing skills in the orange groves of SoCal, but soon after college, just as his motorsport career as an amateur sports car and drag racer was starting to take off, he was called to serve in the U.S. Army. 
Most of his two years in the service in the army was spent as an artillery mechanic during the Korean War. After he returned to civilian life, Gurney made his racing debut in a Triumph TR2 at Torrey Pines, San Diego in 1955. His first big brace in racing came in the fall of 1957 when he was invited to test Frank Asiro's Asiro Special. The Special had a 4.2-liter Maserati engine and Ferrari gear, but it handled terribly, proving difficult to handle for even the top drivers of the day, including Carroll Shelby and Ken Miles. Despite the Special's difficult-to-handle nature, Gurney drove it in the inaugural Riverside Grand Prix, finishing runner-up to Shelby and ahead of established drivers including Phil Hill and Maston Gregory. The feat caught the attention of Ferrari imported Luigi Cinetti, who then arranged for a Ferrari factory drive for Gurney at Le Mans in 1958. During his stint in the car at Le Mans, Gurney worked his way up to his highest fifth position before handing the car over to fellow Californian Bruce Kessler, who later crashed the car out of the race. Kessler's accident notwithstanding, Gurney had impressed enough during his run at Le Mans, and he was invited to test for Ferrari's Formula One team and earned himself a race seat for 1959. Gurney started only four races that year, retiring from the French Grand Prix, but scored a second, third, and fourth positions at the German, Portuguese, and Italian Grands Prix, respectively. Gurney scored enough points to finish an impressive seventh in the World Championship in just his rookie season in Formula One. During his first year in the Formula 1, Gurney found that the strict structure of Ferrari did not suit him and decided to switch to BRM for the 1960 Formula 1 World Championship. It was a disastrous season for Dan, and his only finish of the entire year was a 10th position at the British Grand Prix. 1960 was also significant for Gurney in a less than positive light when he crashed his car at the Dutch Grand Prix at Sunfort while running in 5th position. As Gurney sped towards the Tarzan hairpin at 140 miles per hour, a pipe in his rear brakes broke, sending him over a bank after locking his front wheels. Gurney flew down a considerable drop off the side of the circuit, killing an unfortunate bystander, but he was fortunate enough to walk away from the accident with relatively minor injuries. As a result of the accident, Gurney became deeply suspicious of race engineers, which is something he would carry with him for many more years to come but he also decided to change his driving style in the aftermath of the accident. He jokingly referred to this new style as what he called the chicken shit school of racing in reference to the light tap he would give the brake pedal just before full application. This new style meant he was actually using his brakes less and allowed him to make his brakes last longer, giving him a significant advantage over his rivals, especially in endurance racing. In general, Gurney was regarded to have an exceptionally fluid style of driving. However, he was known to employ a more aggressive and riskier style to make up ground during a race if he needed to. At the 1967 Rex Mays 300 IndyCar in his hometown of Riverside, California, a tire puncture put him almost two laps behind the leaders halfway through the race. After pitting to replace the punctured tire, Gurney rejoined the race and threw caution to the wind. Gone was the conservative, fluid driving style, and he began to carve his way through the race field. He eventually erased the huge deficit he faced after the puncture, and he captured what many called the best win of his career after claiming an unlikely victory, passing Bobby Unser on the final lap. Back in Formula 1, Gurney was on the move again in 1961, 
leaving BRM to join up with Sweden's Joe Bonnier for the Porsche factory's team first full season in Formula One. The 1961 season was fairly successful for Gurney after scoring three second-place finishes en route to a fourth-place finish in the Drivers' Championship. Gurney also came very close to scoring his first F1 victory at the French Grand Prix that year, what was passed at the very last moment by Ferrari's Giancarlo Baghetti at the finish line. Though there was some criticism that he did not Baghetti to take the win, Gurney retorted that blocking another driver was something that he considered both extremely dangerous and unsportsmanlike. Victory in Formula 1 finally came for Gurney at the 1962 French Grand Prix at rouen les arts an accomplishment that he would repeat just a week later at a non-championship F1 event at the Stuttgart Solitude Racetrack. An interesting side note is that Porsche was struggling in Formula 1 and would cite rising costs as the reason to withdraw at the end of 1962. Porsche would go on to have success as an F1 engine supplier, most notably with McLaren in the the early 1980s, but Gurney's French Grand Prix win in the 1962 remains the famed German Mark's only win in Formula 1. His next move in F1 was to join up with Jack Brabham at the self-titled Brabham Racing Organization in 1963, and he won the team's first F1 race at Rouen in 1964. It wasn't the last win for Gurney that year, as he went on to win the 1964 season finale in Mexico City at the Autodromo Hermanos Rodriguez and finished sixth in the world championship behind fellow American Richie Ginther. Gurney's two-year stint with Brabham during the mid-60s was fairly successful, scoring 10 podiums in addition to his two victories. At this point in his career, Gurney was enjoying a level of popularity not seen by many other drivers of that era. Car and Driver magazine latched on to this popularity, promoting an idea that Gurney should run for the U.S. presidency in 1964. The idea was eventually abandoned after it was discovered that he was too young to run for the Oval Office, but the joke persisted and resurrected every election cycle thereafter for many more years to come. Gurney also had a very vibrant fan club, which had members all over the world, including many countries behind the Iron Curtain. Not included in Dan's career statistics are the races that got away from him while he was leading, often by a large margin, but he was forced to retire because of mechanical failure. Funnily enough, while these retirements were obviously a frustration on the track, off the track they only fueled the, an increase in popularity with his fans. Outside of the car, Gurney and Carroll Shelby started collaborating as early as 1962 to build an American Formula One car to compete with the top European marks. Shelby convinced tire manufacturer Goodyear, who at the time were eager to challenge Firestone's dominance of American racing, to sponsor the team. Goodyear's then-president Victor Holt suggested that the fledgling F1 team use the name All-American Racers, which was a name that Gurney disliked but felt obligated to agree to. All-American Racers' initial focus was America and the Indianapolis 500, but Gurney's passion lay in European road racing and desperately wanted to win the Formula One World Championship in a car that they would come to call the Eagle. The Formula One team would be powered by British-built Westlake engines and was named Anglo-American Racers under the management of Bill Dunn. They set up shop in Rye, Sussex, adjacent to the Westlake engine plant, but the outward appearance to the public was that Anglo-American racers was primarily a British effort. Gurney maintained that the cars were actually designed and mostly built by members of the All-American racers team at their Southern California facility. 
The team went on to make their debut in the 1966 Formula One World Championship, but the development of the Westlake engine was way behind schedule. When the team finally made it to the track at the second race of the year at Spa-Francorchamps in Belgium, they did so without the Westlake engine and instead had to use outdated four-cylinder 2.7-liter Cooper Climax engines. The race was a washout and the torrential downpour around the track was recorded for posterity in the film Grand Prix. Gurney was captured in the film along with several other drivers including John Surtees, Joe Bonnier and Jim Clark. Gurney eventually finished 7th in the race, but was not classified. He had suffered from mechanical issues and a sick engine throughout the race, which dropped him several laps behind the leaders. And at times, he was actually driving so slow, he could actually hear the race order on the PA system around the track. Despite the less than impressive debut, Gurney would then claim Anglo-American racers' first world championship points just three weeks later after finishing 5th at the French Grand Prix. The next year, 1967, the team started poorly, with Gurney and teammate Bob Bondurant failing to finish the first three races of the season. But when Formula One returned to Spa for the Belgian Grand Prix, there were not many people expecting them to win, but Gurney proved them all wrong. He qualified well, starting the race in the middle of the front row, but dropped back into the middle of the pack after a very poor start. Gurney was plagued with a high-speed engine misfire, but good luck was on his side when Jim Clark, who was running in second place, had a mechanical problem of his own and dropped down into ninth position. Misfire notwithstanding, Gurney recorded the fastest lap of the race on lap 19, and two laps later he passed Jackie Stewart in the BRM to take the lead, which he would hold on to for the remainder of the race, eventually finishing over a minute ahead of Stewart. The win was the high point for the Eagle Westlake in Formula 1. The Westlake engine was consistently unreliable, but this had to do with the failures of the peripheral systems, such as the fuel pump and fuel injection, rather than the design of the engine itself. The rest of the 1967 season was frustrating for Anglo-American racers, with a third place the only other finish of the season for Dan Gurney. And halfway through 1968, he had switched to McLaren Ford before deciding to sit out the entire 1969 Formula 1 season. But then later in 1969, then age 39, Gurney rejoined the McLaren team for three races after Bruce McLaren was tragically killed in testing at Goodwood. Gurney then drove the car to sixth place at Clermont-Ferrand and took McLaren's place driving a Can-Am race at Mosport, winning the event. By the time Gurney had left Formula 1 in 1970, he had raced an 86 Grand Prix, which ranks him third all-time among American F1 drivers. His four Grand Prix wins is the second most by an American driver after the legendary Mario Andretti. F1 was not Gurney's sole interest in motor racing, and he raced at the Indy 500 every year from 1962 to 1970. He made his debut at the 500 in a car designed by John Crosswaite and built by Mickey Thompson. The car ran well and Gurney sat comfortably in 10th place until he retired in the 92nd lap after a transmission seal failed. In his last three races at the 500, he came close to winning, finishing third and second on two occasions. In 1963, Gurney finished fifth at the Daytona 500, driving a Holman Moody Ford, and won four of his five NASCAR victories at the Riverside International Speedway with the famed Wood Brothers. After retiring in 1970, Gurney devoted his time as a car maker and team owner and remained the chairman and CEO of All-American Racers until his son Justin took over in 2011. 
In total, all American racers have won almost 80 races, including the Indianapolis 500, the 12 Hours of Sebring, and the 24 Hours of Daytona, while Eagle customer teams have won three Indy 500s and three championships. Always someone to try and adopt new ideas, Gurney was the first driver to wear a full-face helmet in 1968. And as owner of All-American Racers, Gurney developed the Gurney Flap, or Wicker Bill, which is a small flap set at a right angle of the pressure side of a wing, increasing downforce with only a minimal increase in drag. The Gurney Flap has also been developed for use in the aviation industry around the world. When Gurney field-tested his invention, he found that it allowed the car to negotiate turns at higher speeds and also increased straight-line speed on straightaways. Gurney is also credited with the creation of the Gurney Bubble, which is a smooth bubble fitted onto the top of the Ford GT40 Mark IV that Gurney raced to victory at Le Mans with A.J. Foyt in 1967. At 6 foot 4 inches, Gurney did not fit well in the diminutive Ford, but the addition of the bubble gave him the headroom he needed to fit into the car without creating any additional aerodynamic drag. Gurney's numerous contributions to motorsport were not only limited to the technical side, because after winning at Le Mans in 1967, Gurney spontaneously sprayed champagne on the podium, and in doing so, unwittingly began a custom that has become a signature celebration in many forms of motorsports. Gurney was also instrumental in introducing rear-engine cars to Indianapolis by bringing Lotus and Ford to the Speedway in 1963. On the track, Gurney's legacy includes wins in Formula One, IndyCar, NASCAR, Can-Am, and Trans-Am, which is a feat that has only been equaled by Mario Andretti and Juan Pablo Montoya. By the time he retired as a driver in 1970, Gurney had raced in 312 events in more than 20 countries with more than 51 makes of automobile, winning 51 races, 47 podiums, and capturing 42 pole positions. During his years in Formula One, he made 86 starts, recorded three pole positions, four wins, 19 podiums, six fastest laps, and collected 133 world championship points. Gurney's win at the Belgian Grand Prix in 1967 makes him the only American in history to put a car of his own construction into the winner's circle at a Formula One race. A fitting tribute from one of his fellow race drivers came from the father of the late Jim Clark, who told Gurney at Clark's funeral in 1968 that he was the only rival that his son Jim ever truly feared on the track. Away from motor racing, Gurney joined the Screen Actors Guild in 1965 and appeared in such racing films such as Grand Prix, Winning, and A Man and a Woman. Sadly, Dan Gurney died from complications from pneumonia on January 14, 2018. He is survived by his second wife, Evie Brown, who was a public relations executive with Porsche in the 60s, six children, and eight grandchildren. And there you go, our first in the season of F1 Legends, Dan Gurney. And like I say, if I was just going to talk for a couple of minutes or less about the Gurney flap, I would have been paying a severe disservice to the late, great Dan Gurney. And like I say, if you enjoyed this uh, episode, please share it with family and friends and other Formula One fans and uh, let us know. If you, you like it and want us to do more like this, send me an email at scuderiaf1pod at gmail.com or tweet me at scuderiaf1pod on Twitter. And that's a wrap. Thank you very much for listening. We'll catch you again this time next week. Yeah! 
Thanks for listening to the Scuderia F1 podcast. If you want to get the show notes for this episode, then head over to ScuderiaF1Pod.com. Want to get in touch with us? Then email us at ScuderiaF1Pod at gmail.com. You were listening to SPN, the Sports Podcasting Network. Visit us, sportspodcastingnetwork.com. Space. Some regions are vast and empty. Other areas we call closets. Fortunately, Kevin from the Container Store has answers. Hmm, right. Kevin, what gives you the power over space? I'd say Alpha Customizable Closets. With free design and Alpha's adjustable shelving and drawers, I can create space in any size closet. Kevin, master of space and closets. Or just Kevin. Plus, right now, save 30% on Alpha and installation and earn up to $500 in credit through February 10th. At the Container Store, where space comes from. Where is that music coming from? Space. Some regions are vast and empty. Other areas we call closets. Fortunately, Kevin from the Container Store has answers. Hmm, right. Kevin, what gives you the power over space? I'd say Alpha Customizable Closets. With free design and Alpha's adjustable shelving and drawers, I can create space in any size closet. Kevin, master of space and closets. Or just Kevin. Plus, right now, save 30% on Alpha and installation and earn up to $500 in credit through February 10th. At the Container Store, where space comes from. Where is that music coming from?